Welcome back and I wanted to have a little chat with you just before we started this episode with Sid Patel. First of all, it is award season. So obviously you would like the Philip Duff Show, which is a completely freewheeling and frequently intoxicated podcast, to win at all those awards. I mean, just imagine the look on everyone's faces. So if you have a moment after listening to this episode, get nominating in all the normal, usual places. Now, back to business. Uh, For this episode, I was talking to Sid Patel, someone who I actually got to know on LinkedIn, believe it or not. It's not all... uh, bottle manufacturers in India offering their products to you. Sid, uh, I almost don't know where to start with him. He runs and has founded spirits, beer and wine contests around the world. So with his company, Beverage Trade Network, they've got the Bartender Spirits Awards, the USA Spirits Ratings, the Sommelier Choice Awards, the USA Trade Tasting, the UK Trade Tasting, Uh, When I spoke to him, he was in India on his way to the UK and the first thing that he was looking forward to was going into a pub. So Sid is very clearly one of us and I had a lovely chat with them. So please enjoy. Don't forget to like, subscribe and nominate. Cheers. How did it get going? And we're live with the Philip Duff Show. Well, it's 9am. I'm here in my hotel room, actually in Toronto of all places. Uh, you are definitely not where your background is showing you, Sid. <laughs> <laughs> I miss London. Yeah. So right now I'm traveling. I'm in India right now. And, you know, uh, lovely to be at your show. But basically based in New Jersey, you know, uh, we do a lot of business uh, in London as well. And that's where I'm heading next. So it's a little pit stop out here. Ah, going to go check out London. I haven't been there in a few months myself. I used to live there and I just adore going back. Oh, I love the city. You know, I just I just can't wait to go back and hit that pubs and just, you know, walk the streets. Uh, so I just love London. So many great new bars. So look, if you had to explain uh, what it is that you do in like, you know, 30 seconds, what would you do? It. What's the uh, the Sid Patel 101? Sure. So uh, we own Beverage Trade Network that uh, is an ecosystem of events, competitions, magazines and a platform with the goal of connecting wineries, breweries, and distilleries to importers, distributors, sommeliers, and bartenders. So we help brands grow their sales and distribution. That's pretty impressive, man. I mean, I was just looking you up, and there's so many spirits contests, wine contests. I think I saw a cannabis one in there as well, right? True. We do do cannabis drinks expo as well in Chicago and San Francisco. That's a lot, man. I'm surprised you don't look more tired. (laughs) Yep, yep. It's it's been a it's been a it's going to be a long one today, like seven a.m. to eleven, and uh, you know, I, th- I think, <laughs> and we're just hitting our uh, busiest season. London competitions is our main one, so almost five six thousand entries, and then hitting pro wine also. So I don't know if you're coming there, but you know, just busy with the with basically this is the show time for us. It is. Well, let's talk about that for uh, a little bit, because even for people who are bartenders. Uh, certainly for consumers, the whole idea of awards and ratings can be a little bit opaque. You know, you go in a store to buy a bottle and there's there's things that look like awards or stickers. Uh, sometimes if you look closely at them, uh, they're not actual awards. <laughs> and this has been yep. going on for hundreds and hundreds of years when the they used to have like the world's expos. 
they would award medals to wines and spirits. So it started at least probably 150 years ago. How do you approach it now? Yep. So just a little context, you know, I come before all this, I had my own private labels, my own brand, my own distribution house in New Jersey, Delaware, my family owns almost 50 liquor stores on East Coast, you know, so I come from the street, basically, you know, and basically because of that need, I see it very differently, you know, so we came up with the concept of evaluating products by quality, value and package, you know, that's what I believe uh, consumers are buying uh, with that intent and the trade buyers are also buying with that sort of criteria, you know, so for me, you know, uh, if Yellowtail is delivering great quality at $7.99, for example, that's a good wine. If the consumers are selected, that is the number one top three wine selling, right? So those kind of, con- I want to I make it relevant. So that's, that is the number one reason we started. And coming back to your question, I agree for sure. There are a lot of, you know, there is a lot of opaqueness. You know, you can't tell a story uh, of why and how, you know, with just that metal, right? So it, it's a long-term uh, sort of integrity and uh, reputation that one has to build. Uh, and I do respect some of some of them have done it, you know, like Decanter, Wine Spectator, you know, uh, but that's all like just pure quality. Obviously, $40 wine will be a better quality than a $7 wine, right? Uh, most of the time. And I'm just saying wine, but it's the same for spirit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. But I think uh, some I, I put it this way that I'm not here to convince, you know, uh, anyone here. So for some bartenders who do believe for some sommeliers who do believe. So for some brands who do believe that it does help, it does help. And for consumers who don't believe, eventually, you know, uh, I just personally think it's true. You know, so uh, for sure, if someone has given, you know, a high rating, it's at least uh, helping you in a buying decision than something which has not. Yeah. And if you consistently follow a particular writer or critic or expert, You'll get to know, you know, do you like their recommendations or not? Do you like what Dave Broom says or Robert Parker mm-hmm. or anything like that? So that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like food. Like, you know, you may like some cuisine. I may like, you know, we, we all know that, you know, this is all like you like this for it. So you're going to give that a high rate, you know. But if there is a strict benchmark and if there is a process and then you actually go a little deeper on how this competition evaluates, then for sure it makes sense if you are that kind of buyer. Right, right. And there's lots of, as they say, hooks and eyes to this. There's a lot of spirit brands I know that enter contests, not even, you know, to win medals, but they they want feedback. Absolutely. A very big part of that. Is that something that you cater to the people who enter the contests you run? 100%, Philip. So that that is something because I know because I come from the trade, right? So we give them a detailed feedback about the score breakdown itself. So on how much you actually got in quality, how much you got in the package, how much you got in you know value score. So you you take that feedback plus you get a constructive feedback from our judges on how they think the brand is can be positioned, and you get a market feedback meaning saying like okay, we think that it's two dollars more for the U.S. market and so on, or maybe. You know, uh, tequila is oversaturated and I think, you know, it's going to come down a little bit. So you may reduce your price or whatever it is, but you get a constructive feedback that they can take as well. And then you get a professional tasting note for sure that they can use uh, in their marketing. Yeah. And first, you know, we've got probably a bit of a focus here for spirits and the entree. For a lot of people, uh, it can be very difficult to look at spirits awards because, of course, you can only judge the people that enter. And entering mm-hmm. uh, doesn't just cost money. 
it also uh, is a it can be quite a large logistical burden for uh, a small company. Like I know spirit companies that basically have like full-time staff who just enter them in contests every year because it's a lot and you're <laughs> shipping bottles and maybe you're shipping them across the Atlantic and stuff like that. Uh, it can be really complicated. When uh, you're running judging, how do you reduce the effects of groupthink where you've got like one strong personality around a judging table and everybody kind of listens to them? <laughs> yep. So uh, first of all, in our competitions, it's all trade only buyers, right? So there is, we don't, uh, I'll, I'll, basically we don't, you know, do any pay to sort of like no distillers, no Diageo. Uh, distiller is there or no writer is there or you know there is no influence at all so that's one second is it's just trade buyers and you know trade uh buyer will respect each other and then we there is no like uh chair or a uh uh you know like a, a vip or something tags going on there you know if you're a master of wine or if you're a mom and public or store buyer or if you're a bartender you're sitting on the same table and here's, uh, you know, everyone's score is respected and an average is taken. So the difference is you don't have to talk or agree. You can say it's 80 points. I can say it's 90 points. You know, the system will say that, okay, this is where it's going. And then an average is taken. But let's imagine that I say 70 points and you say 90. Then there is a big disconnect, right? So it's not good on the entrant because we are both like complete disconnect and there is a big gap. So then the system, our system says that, hey, you guys need to talk it out. So, and then it's, you know, I'll convince you, you'll convince me, and then maybe you'll come at 85, I'll come at 75. But ultimately, we don't have to agree, you know, and then an average is taken. So you can be in your, all right, well, I respect you stick with your score, I stick with my score. Yeah, it's always yeah. fascinating to see that play out in uh, in real terms. Yeah. And it's always fascinating to see some of the spirits that are entered, because some of them are horrendous. We're not just talking not to my taste. They're like, we need to alert the police. Bad. Yep. 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 I, I think I think as long as you know we we have a good qualification criteria, Philip. So we we only take judges who are actively tasting and buying. Buying is the word, you know, uh, in their role, and they're evaluating for the buying role every week, minimum of forty spirits, right? So they're professional in evaluating it's not your opinion or my opinion when you're evaluating they're used to that for their business you know if you, if you start doing that in your business you know you can be out of the business if you start you know, you know making a bar menu based on your preference instead of the reality you know you'll soon be out of the business right so we our our trade judges are used to that and end of the day there is you know ethical code of conduct which we all have to sort of you know enforce again and again that it's not what you have to you know you, you got to respect in itself like and in itself, basically. So you can't compare this with anything. Just simply go and compare that with the product itself and then score. And when you're yourself, you know, shopping for a bottle, be it online or in the real world, apart from your own contests, are there any kind of contests or awards that you uh, respect if you say, oh, this got a, a 93 or this got a gold medal in contest? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I there are so many, as you know, these days, but... Uh, in wine, for sure, decanter uh, and wine spectator, I would mm -hmm. definitely respect uh, because they're also a little more consumer focused uh, driven brands, you know, uh, in spirits. Uh, there is IWSC and San Francisco competition, you know, but I respect uh, 
I'll, I'll respect them because they're old and they are they've seen almost a lot of years in their game you know for that particular reason uh because there is there is something there i'm sure that they've evolved in their process of judging every year so you know uh but i personally you know i'm i'm that sort of a buyer where i know my price i know where i'm going and i would still ask the bottle shop owner that hey what do you think about this you know and i'm i'm more of a risk taker so i'll i'll still pick anything that is awards basically to me don't influence so much yeah well it's obviously you're you're deep in that world as am i and you've been doing this for a while. Like, what kind of developments have you seen in the sort of spirits being entered, the quality, the variety, you know, in all the time you've been running these contests? Yep. So, I mean, between all our competitions, you know, we get about 12,000 products every year. Uh, and I think one of the main ones, especially for your show relevant to, you know, the, the audience here, Bartender Spirits Awards is uh, our sort of, you know, U.S. main competition where almost 2,000 products come. I've seen growth in uh, the obvious, you know, the tequilas, the agaves, the low alcohol, non-alcohol category. Oof, that's that's gone up as well. RTDs, huge, huge uh, growth there as well. Uh, whiskeys for sure in US. Uh, for some reason, I'm trying to figure it out, but US producers don't care much about overseas competition. So we don't see much in London. The bourbons mm -hmm. uh, still don't come in London. Uh, but I think they should because there is a big bourbon crave in UK, you know. Um, but that's my take on on where the growth is. You know, gin is flat. Uh, vodka, for sure, you know, is is a tough category. Rum, uh, dark rums are coming and good. Um, yeah, that's that's the category sort of top categories yeah. that we're seeing. And obviously, lots of different spirits get entered. Everything from Bijo and Aquavit to more familiars, like. I've been in a lot of judging rooms for contests like the ones you've mentioned, and I've seen a table and I'm like, these people are not experts on Aquavit, right? And that can be really tricky. Like I own a Geneva brand and yep. we've, we've been very fortunate. We've won a lot of gold medals and whatnot, but quite brutally, finding five people in any judging pool who actually know enough about Geneva to judge it is not going to happen. So there's a huge amount of world spirits going growing outside their own borders these days how would you approach getting qualified judges in the future that's a good question and there will always be some niche category right so i can't have a pisco buyer uh just for the pisco for piscos right in all honesty so uh there will always be cases like that and you know, ultimately, uh, you would have a senior person, uh, which people be encouraged that, you, okay, have an opinion of someone who's seen it. You know, in, in, in London, let's say we have uh, Salvatore, you know, uh, uh, you know, Calibresi, for example. So we have five or six of those kind of people who have been in the industry for 40, 50 years, you know. But in all honesty, yes, for sure, you can't go that na narrow. Like, we're also seeing, you know, solid growth in Indian single malls, for example. Yes. You know, uh, coming, uh, solid growth there as well, like almost... 100 products have come from India this time in Bartender Spirits Awards, right? Like gin from India and so on. But now yes. people don't know much uh, about, you know, the, the making. And I think I think it's an ev evaluation of, uh, you know, new, something new coming up and becoming broader and then bartenders getting used to that. And then they become professional in judging that spirit. Yeah, and it could be just simple variety that you're not familiar with. I went into a friend's bar in New York a few months ago. He's got five maraschinos there. 
I'm not sure I knew that there were five maraschinos. Yeah. And, and I think, I you, know, was, you, know, you know, the WSET sort of basic model, right? So we sometimes go with the basic that, okay, as long as it's varietally correct, the nose, the smell, the color, you know, you, you can go back to the default and at least uh, evaluate without any, like, just if it's varietally sort of correct and smells good and looks good and so on. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm uh, I'm WSET qualified myself. But yeah, we are seeing a magical growth of things like polugar and uh, even wild-ass Mexican spirits like pop. Oh, yeah, beyond, beyond agave, beyond tequila, right? Let me ask you, like, what, what are you seeing? I mean, you know more bartending world than me. Like, I come from the sales and distribution, sort of more on the wholesale side. But you've you've gone through everything. So let me actually ask you a couple of uh, things, Philip. You know, what are you seeing? What are the categories that you uh, think that distillers can pay attention to in sort of developing, you know, uh, uh, for the next 18 months, like in the U.S. market? Well, you quite rightly said agave. Mexico can't make enough agave to supply America in terms of spirits. The thirst is enormous. And actually, I just got back from hanging out with my mate Rakshay in Italy, who has an Indian agave spirit, Pistola. Um, yeah, I know. Distilled and aged in Goa, right? and it's fucking delicious. Yeah. Right? If I was Mexican, I'd be shitting myself, right? Yep. And, and I think a lot of uh, world is planting agave as we speak, but it takes four to five years, I believe, right? So it's going to come. Yep. So what yeah, we're going to see more world agave spirits, and okay. um, it'll be interesting. That'll be very, very interesting. The bigger picture is that whiskey continues to boom right unless you're a little bit older you might remember there was a time when whiskey was not booming and then yep. single malts took off and more recently bourbon has taken off and world whiskey has taken off the uh, amroots and cavalans of this world True. and i also think philip uh women have started consuming a lot of whiskey and that has helped the category mm. as well well spirits in general de definitely yeah. so it's it, it because it continues to get so large, uh, you can now build a profitable niche inside there. Like the newest legal niche in the world, it was only certified about two months ago, is uh, American single malt. So mm -hmm. it's been around for almost 20 years. Uh, now it's legal. Um, mm -hmm. I would guess the US government is going to get behind this and promote the ads off it because scotch is worth 20 billion pounds a year to the UK mm -hmm. economy. That's just actually the exports, not even counting the visitor centers and tourism and stuff like that. So definitely lots more of that. Mm -hmm. And rum's, uh, pardon the phrase, a rum one, because the industry joke that I'm sure you've heard is this is definitely going to be rum's year like it has for the last 20 years. Everyone's always waiting yeah. for rum to happen because the quality is stunning. The pricing is brilliant. Uh, the, the variety, the history, it's all there. And yet, it doesn't quite tip over. So it could be one of those things. Mm. What are you seeing consumers ask, you know, like uh, in, in the bar more these days? Like I personally have started trying, hey, have you got agave-based cocktail? Have you got tequila-based cocktails? You know, like that is sort of the beginning of you understanding where the shift is going, right? Like what, what kind of questions are coming to the bartenders? Well, what you're seeing is the evidence of more than 20 years of what is we can now call the second golden age of cocktails, right? It really got going again in the mid-1990s in London, and it took about five, eight years for it to kick off in the US. So now we've got 20 years. So 
I could take you out to bars, not just in Brooklyn, but in Bushwick, and they're full of very fashionable 25-year-old kids, and the only agave they've ever had is mezcal. To them, tequila is what your dad drinks. Boring, right? Yeah. So those kids now could be, they, they range in ages from 21 to 30. The 30-year-olds are starting to make a bit of money, so they can pay much more for, uh, for mezcal. They uh, logically, this hasn't really happened yet, but it's a logical guess, will also start looking at Bacanora and Sotal and Ricea and Pox. And there's already been a little bump in what I call the mezcal substitute, which is to say Mexican rum, right? Like Paranubes. Mm -hmm. It's made the same way. It's artisanal and rural and authentic. Uh, and people really like it. So those mm -hmm. are... Calling trends is is nonsense, but I am seeing those uh, those things pick up. Like the idea that you don't have a mezcal cocktail on the menu in New York yeah. or London is is kind of crazy. And you'd be like, if, if you showed it to your bar manager, he'd be like, I think you've forgotten something. <laughs> true, true. What what what's your take on this whole uh, no alcohol, low alcohol, or or literally no alcohol drinks, right? Uh, it's carrying a lot of uh, uh, alcohol producers. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think you know, too, is there's a lot of money has been pumped into this, right? Non-alcoholic spirits. It's VC, wild-ass guest money. 100%. And I agree to that thing called follow the money. When Diageo launches this or, you know, Pernod Ricard launches this. Yeah. It's scary. So it's, and nobody's releasing numbers. That's the other mm. thing. No one's talking about case sales. So that should always raise a very large question mark. Um, there are, now we're what, five, six years in from Seedlip and we're seeing great products. Seedlip's a great product. Everleaf mm. is a great product. The Liars range are absolutely fantastic. And there's a lot of crap. There's already been a lot of bankruptcies. And mm -hmm. there's uh, even like Diageo at one stage, their incubator unit to still ventures, something yep. like and, a, a third of all their investments were non-ALK. That is no longer yep. the case. They have pulled. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, they were. Um, so, so they are scaling back, is it like to the to the alcohol category? Uh, yeah, M maybe I think if you were to ask them, they'd say we're being realistic. And that's fair because. What I notice, and I'm sure your family notice in those uh, in those liquor stores, everybody buys a bottle. It's yeah. that second purchase that I think is tricky. I think um, liquor stores. I've not seen much of this category at all. You know, it is it is uh, the bar or social uh, drinking sort of on premise, mm -hmm. uh, or or you know uh, even at home sometimes just to try you know like where where underage or whatever you, you know uh, segment you I, I, I drink non-alcoholic i've just done dry january and me and my wife adore this is going to sound like an advertisement the uh saint agrestus phony negroni it comes in these gorgeous little 200 ml glass bottles um it tastes exactly like a negroni and it's non-alcoholic and it's a you but know, is that is that for a health reason you are moving into this direction uh, well i always did it because uh, okay. I drink heavily the rest of the year. But it's no, uh, like, having a non-alcoholic drink. And the price is part of it. It's no, like, 
you feel belittled if you're out with your friends and you're just drinking soda water and they're all drinking $22 cocktails because very yeah. often they won't let you buy a drink. Like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. You're just drinking. So that can socially be awkward. But yeah. So to, I'll say two things about the non-alts. Um, one, if you're a good cocktail bar, you can probably make something just as good yourself, right? So mm. the reason to use a Liars and Everleaf a seed lip is because you think the brand contributes to your appeal the same way you'd have a Sieta Mysterious cocktail or a Bullet Bourbon cocktail. You feel it's a good fit, which is a great reason to do it. Um, secondly, with the consumers, to kind of finish my thought, everybody buys a bottle once a year. They're having a Christmas party. Alcoholic Uncle Alan is coming and he can't drink anymore. So you buy a bottle of X, right? Yeah. Then it might not get used for a year. And one of the problems that seems so self-evident, but it never even occurred to me until recently is non-alcoholic spirits aren't preservatives in the way that alcohol is. So with botanical flavors and whatnot, the profile isn't, shall we say, quite as set in stone as it would be if it was alcoholic. So if you open the bottle up again 11 months later, it might not taste the same. Uh -huh. and purely from a product consistency point of view, that's not ideal. So I might see some growth, and I'm certainly seeing a lot of quality in non-alcoholic bottled and canned cocktails, because then you control it completely. The mm. liars do a non-alcoholic Prosecco, a non-alcoholic whiskey and Coke, a non-alcoholic G&T. Sid, man, I don't know if you've tasted them. These are excellent. These are as good, if not better, than any 5% ABV can't. Now, now, I'm still in so much love with beers and cocktails, so I've not gone there yet. But uh, I think I think, do you th I think the big companies are also hedging. This allows them to hedge into going to the, to the traditional 7-Elevens or Targets of the yes. world, which is not controlled by ABC. So I, I also think that they're hedging cannabis, this and that, a little bit going, you know, in distribution models, uh, direct to consumer without any issues. Oh, definitely direct to consumer. In fact, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a class action lawsuit in the US and it invited people who had been uh, misled by Fireball because Fireball, uh, which is the cinnamon whiskey. I'm doing that thing yeah. with my, my fingers. It's actually the whiskey is actually produced at a Perno plant here in um, here in Canada. Uh, but they produced a malt based variant that they could sell at truck stops and gas stations and all that. And a group of consumers got together to sue them because it was like, oh, well, it wasn't clear from the packaging that this wasn't the real Fireball. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the idea of being such a connoisseur of Fireball that you could tell the difference between the malt beverage and the, uh, the whiskey-based one is a little bit amusing. But you're right. They are trying to get into A, direct-to-consumer, and B, uh, outside the traditional liquor store model. Mm. Just one more thing on that, because I'm also having a conversation lately with our sort of industry people about this subject, which you can have your opinion either way, right? So this whole anti-alcohol lobby sort of is pushing the message that, uh, you know, wine or uh, spirits or alcohol drinks are bad, basically, mm, you know, yes. especially in Europe. This whole thing happens uh, first in yes. Europe and then UK and then US later on, uh, or maybe in California first and so on, right? California so, for sure. Uh, exactly. So I think uh, the the thing is like the, the posters and ads are you know saying no in no drinking in front of children and this and that is happening. You know uh, there is a lot of debate going on, especially in the uh, in the wine industry 
about what we can do. You know, what is your opinion on that uh, or any ideas or are you supporting that? Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So I mentioned, I think, before we start recording, I used to live in the UK. I'm obviously from Ireland, spent almost 20 years living in Holland. So I am down with the EU. And a lot of the things you're talking about are being debated in the European Union. And obviously, when they pass a law, it passes for all the 28 or 29 member states and it governs 480 million people. So indeed, many people in the US haven't seen this. It's not really on their radar. And there is a bigger debate coming out. It actually started in the UK. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but you've probably heard about the, you know, the sensible drinking limits, 21 units for a man, 14 for a woman per week. Do you ever hear about those? No, I've not. Well, no, it was a UK campaign. It started in the 1970s. Okay. And it was a responsible drinking campaign and it was 14 and 21. It says, we've done the scientific research and a woman should have no more than 14 units a week and a man uh, 21, you know, based on differences in body composition uh -huh. and weight and stuff like that. And it only recently emerged that they completely made up the scientific research. There's no scientific backing to those numbers whatsoever. Wow. And that seems to have snowballed into a debate in popular uh -huh. culture. So The Lancet, the English uh, medical newspaper, published a thing about two years ago saying there is no safe amount of alcohol. And in popular culture, one of the biggest podcasts in the world, uh, Andrew Huberman, his, I think, most popular ever episode of Huberman Lab, he's a, a neurobiologist, something from Stanford, was basically saying, hey, no judgment, but here's all the research. And I don't know if you heard the episode. It's not good if you like alcohol. So that's all there. And my take on it, you made the mistake of asking an Irishman for his opinion, uh, is alcohol is unquestionably, A, not necessary for human life, which many yep. Irish people would disagree with, but it is not necessary for human life. And B, it probably is necessary for human civilization. So I had a guy on the podcast, uh, Dr. Edward Slingerland. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's uh, He wrote a brilliant book called Drunk, where he mm -hmm. is a, a, a globally renowned professor of medieval Chinese culture. But in all his research and publications, he kept bumping up against alcohol. So he wrote a book about alcohol. And he also just presented the findings. And a central tenet is, if alcohol was that bad for us, it would have been evolved out of us by now. And it's not. Alcohol mm -hmm. does shorten our lives, does do this, does do that. But it also brings us together. That's how come mm -hmm. we're talking on a Zoom and our closest genetic relatives, the chimps, are living in trees, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They don't even have iPhones. We look like, we genetically are chimps, but we work together like ants. And that's how come mm -hmm. we've got a remote control lander on the surface of mars right now and a large part of that is because we trust and we trust because we bond and we bond with alcohol uh, mm -hmm. the major problem that dr slingerland uh identified which is again bad news if you sell geneva like me is we're not built for spirits we are built to bond and drink something around five six seven eight percent so wine or beer spirits are quite new in human history mm -hmm. And we are not built for it. So that's uh, that, that's my take on it. And I think 
it's sort of like, again, great news for uh, the smugglers of the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is going to allow alcohol sales now to registered diplomats and their families. And there'll be, you know, instead of smuggling, which everybody did. Like, trust me, mm. there's no problem getting hold of alcohol in Saudi Arabia. And mm. this is a place where they'll cut off your damn head. So if people continue to drink alcohol, even faced with those penalties, we have to be realistic and say, we're humans. We drink alcohol. Let's get the message out there and let's do it safely. And there's more pleasure in mm. moderation. In the same way, I get a lot of pleasure after I've been to the gym. I don't get a lot of pleasure at the gym. And the countries that do it best uh, in terms of state monopolies and control, Canada, where I am, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, they have complete state monopolies. Uh, I'm here to tell you, the Danes are not drinking less. They drink mm -hmm. like the Vikings they yeah. are. So what, what's your, where are you at? Because you obviously go across the spectrum from wine and beer to spirits. Indeed, cannabis yep. too, which I want to talk to you about. What's your take on this whole uh, alcohol witch hunt? I think my take is, you know, this is sort of a spillover effect from COVID for sure. We all got more health conscious. And that's one. Second is uh, there is a so much younger uh, population in today's world. Once they hit 40-ish, I think they will also need a glass of wine and beer and because they left kids, right? Life goes on <laughs> and so on. So there are many other things. Uh, uh, right now, the, the category that is actually for this, you know, drinking or pushing is sort of a solo liver in an apartment or chilling or majority, you know, very, yeah. very less are like I think you're right. us. So I think it's a cycle. I personally think it's going to, you know, normalize, but this is still... To me, it's a trend. It's just, it's it's made cool, basically. Now, finally, mm -hmm. that became cool. Oh, you don't drink? All right, that's cool. You know, respect. So it non-cool became cool. And the moment it again becomes non-cool, uh, maybe the culture shift will come again, you know. Uh, but anyway, you know, I'm not here to predict or do, you know, I'm just, I just care about uh, our industry and our people. You know, I think I, think I just want to add value to them, which is, you know, if, if I was a distillery or winery or brewery, I would have another SKU uh, of this spirit instead of overthinking about anything else, you know, and just keep navigating and keep navigating. Uh, because I think it's an end game. Like I can now sell in 7-Eleven and the total wine, you know, so instead it's a good thing for me. So, you know, I'm okay either way, but personally I'm pro alcohol, meaning just for that reason, like I love beer meetings. You know, I just love a meeting in a pub in London, for example, you know, over a beer and after the second beer and that handshake. I'm a big fan of that personally, you know, and and the cocktail parties or after event networking. Most, I mean, we've seen a lot of journey. We've seen, you know, like life. So a lot of my deals are made on handshake and in that setting. And I value that over anything else. So that's, well, that's my that's the whole yeah. tenets of. Dr. Slingerland's book, you know, you go out and, you know, w when you have a few drinks with somebody, you yeah. are showing vulnerability and inviting them mm -hmm. to do the same. It's like the mm -hmm. when two knights would meet on a on a road. Yeah, you, you're not so uptight and formal, you know, you're just like you're relaxed. Yeah. yeah, you know, and there's lots of ways to be vulnerable, but alcohol is globally ubiquitous. 
easily dopes. I, 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 one idea, one thought came, right? So, you know, when you want to have a meeting, you you tell someone that let's let's do a coffee meeting. Then there is something called let's do a lunch meeting. Then there is something called let's do a beer meeting. So you you know the intents, right? Where, what, who's where. So that's exactly. a great example of where the beer guy sits or a girl sits, right? In, in your relationship. Yeah, and you can... So you can absolutely bond with somebody over, you know, coffee or whatever it may be. Uh, alcohol doesn't need to be involved at all. But then if it's not, you then need to show vulnerability in a different way. And you're recipro- yeah. you're, you're inviting reciprocation. You know, yeah. on that is built trust, you know, and yeah. after that come contracts, but not before. You have to build the trust first. And then hopefully you never even need to use the contract. But True. You, do, you do definitely... Need that, and again, I'm a pragmatist. I don't think you can ban. Well, I know you can't ban alcohol. It's never worked anywhere. Yeah. So we just have to get along with it. With the young people, I've got an 18 year old stepdaughter. Um, it really is true what they say in the papers. One of the drivers of kids not drinking is they don't want to look sloppy on TikTok. They don't want their friends to yeah. film them. That really is true. And, and and they they are so afraid of judgment these days. That yeah. is the biggest reason they don't drink because they know that they're going to get pulled up or judged or, you know, something's going to come out. I think it's, it's an age thing. I think a a lot because they're worried about external judgment. Yeah. And there's a long term, uh, by which I mean a hundred year decrease in the amount of alcohol. So if some newspaper reporter looks at the last 10 years, they'll write that 97th article about young people aren't drinking, Uh, you know, which to a degree is true, but seen over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's the same as it ever was. But yeah. definitely what's different, and I'm sure you and your family could attest to this, is globally we are drinking more spirits than ever. The difference, oh, yeah, I think, is less marked in the U.S. because the U.S. was always famously a bit more of a spirits market. But if you mm-hmm. look at the spirits consumption in Europe and the U.K., uh, it has skyrocketed, even since I lived there. You see people drinking gin who used to drink wine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, uh, I mean, let, uh, I think everyone does whatever they want and we respect that. And <laughs> I think life goes on. Uh, what else, uh, Philip? Well, I wanted to ask you about cannabis and not just because I'm in Toronto and there's literally a cannabis store on one corner and there's a cannabis store across the street. Oh, you were in store. Toronto. I thought you were in New York. Okay. No, no, yeah, I'm up here to launch Old Duff Geneva. And we right. in New York City, as you may have seen, we've started to get our legal dispensaries, mm-hmm. as they're called, or whatever. How long have you been running the cannabis contest for? About four years. Uh, we're in the fifth year of the show. And how uh, how are the entrants evaluated? And like, what kind of categories are there? Is it per milligram of THC or... so? This is a big downer, but I am completely zero personally in cannabis as far as the user or the knowledge goes. Right, so it it is literally we started this because it's called Cannabis Drinks Expo. So it was the next natural expansion move for us because you know it's a natural sort of pivot, and you know as as every other business. Uh, But I my knowledge of uh, technical part of cannabis is not that high. You know, if you ask me business question, um, uh, I think the category is flat. It's gone down uh, because there was a lot of VC and a lot of uh, seed money, a lot of gold rush moments happened. It is hard to make money in cannabis. 
Um, our shows are struggling. The whole category is struggling. There is no money. No one's making money. So that's my take on this whole category. But if it goes federal, everyone's waiting for the big bill to pass. Right. If it goes federal, it's it's the guy who can or the gal who can hold the longest breath. That is a game of cannabis. You know, if it goes federal, then the big big upside is there. So uh, you know, that's that's where we are at. But we are seeing consistent decline in this category. Like first year was packed, like hundred exhibitors, Whoa. super packed, like the crazy packed show. You know, the next year twenty percent less, next year twenty percent less, and now more and more consolidations. Like we are partnering with you know, uh, a lot of other people to keep this alive, this category. But in that, there is one ray of light, uh, light that happened, which is hemp-based beverages. Oh. So somehow this cannabis beverage, uh, cannabis people are crazy entrepreneurs. They they are even better than us, you know. They will just come up with some solution and they will come out with some idea to keep that thing going, you know. So this, uh, they will bypass the law with creating something which bypasses the law. You know, so the scientists will come out with some other things which can go on the target shelves, for example, or Walgreens. You know what I mean? So this hemp based beverage is is a big growing category where a lot of liquor uh, spirits distributors are also distributing. And it's just available because it's in the normal agricultural sort of bill. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think people have noticed, uh, shall we say, the flatness and there's those huge billion dollar deals being done. I think Constellation bought Canopy Brands or something mm -hmm. like that. And oh, yeah. then, indeed, it fizzled away. Well, let me take that train of thought and put it on a slightly different track to talk about innovation. So mm -hmm. I had a, a post recently, like every other post I ever do on LinkedIn, uh, and I've posted literally on this topic many times before, and it was about how big companies structurally aren't able to create brands anymore. But this post got like 50,000 impressions and debates and 100 comments and stuff like that. And I didn't think it was controversial. But mm -hmm. if you have a brand that sells 50,000 cases or 100,000 cases and it gets bought by one of the big boys, Perno or Bacardi or Diageo or whatever, they can take it to 5 million cases. But I don't think they're capable of creating brands that can go from zero to 10,000 cases anymore. What kind of, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, I guess, right at the cutting edge of innovation. Many people will create a brand and enter it just to get the feedback. And you're seeing it in multiple places in the world. Innovation-wise, in terms of brands, and maybe we'll kind of uh, shuffle a little bit more towards spirits here. What have you been seeing in the last few years? Can the big guys still innovate? I think they, they can, for sure. And they're doing many other ways, you know, like Distilled Ventures is one example for, you know, like they're doing through a way which doesn't uh, uh, put their company at reputation because you don't want to be called as a failure. You tried this brand and then you failed. So there are other reasons they go behind the scene, I think, you know, uh, if uh, then there are, you know, reasons of uh, putting that thing on a PL, you know, because they're listed companies. So, uh, you know, they rather go with the model of this that, okay, zero to 50,000, you do the homework, 50,000 and onwards we do. And it's the same as distribution models. Let's say you go with mom and pop distributors, you build them and Southern takes it, right? You know, they are beyond uh, that era of uh, starting from zero. And it's practical, Philip. It's not like they cannot do it. It's just a proper business scenario. You know, it, it makes more sense on the business side. You know, I think they can. But for other reasons, 
it makes a better business proposition that they outsource that whole thing. That's what I think. Well, I, I'm in agreement with you because uh, these companies very often are my clients too, and I do work for them. And there's a ton of smart people working at every firm I've named and the other ones as well. And with my marketing degree, if I'd walk down a different path, I'd be one of them. But, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, now, I was just going to say, I was going to put one example. All right. So I, I've been in contact with one of the guys who was in the dist- making, I think, uh, Johnny Walker for almost 12 years in product development. All right. Like this is the highest level of uh, volume and product development yes, uh, sort of master. Now, this is a classic example. That guy, you know, have you heard of a company called Imbibe? Yes. Right. So they started this division and then they started into cannabis also. And this is a whole research lab and everything, right? Okay. So uh, again, this, this are many ways they, they do this. You know, they outsource it to a company like Imbibe, you know, but they, they, that's where the development is happening. And then boom, Diageo takes something. But it's technically, Diageo is the biggest customer of Imbibe, for example, what, what I'm trying to say. Yes. Right? So it, th- there are many other ways uh, this thing is handled. And then that person works in Imbibe, let's say instead of the agile now, you know, the, the, the skill has been moved in a different payroll, but there are many, many ways that continue innovation. Uh, that, that, that's, that was my example, uh, one of the other examples. No, it's, it's a good example, you know, and then, you know, the witness for the prosecution would say, well, look, Distill Ventures has been around for 12 years or more now. They, by their own accounts, have done hundreds of investments and they've only had four exits to Diageo ownership. Mm-hmm. which isn't a huge number. Perno yeah. had an incubator unit and they dismantled it, New Brand Ventures. In fact, the guy who ran that, uh, Nick, has set up his own independence uh, incubator. But the point that you made, well, you know, they're, the Diageos are playing a big game. They don't have to go from zero anymore. It's absolutely uh, logical. But that presupposes that they're really good at acquiring a brand at 50,000 or 100,000 cases and growing it to 5 million. And the evidence isn't actually there. Casamigos is a brilliant uh, exception. They bought at 170,000 cases. Now it's at a million. That's great. But think of all the other acquisitions that have happened where mm-hmm. they have quietly just sold off the but brand. But you know, you know, three well, years later. This people don't think about, but the other game is to control the shelf of Smirnoff. You don't want any other. It's like you're controlling by let the other small brand of our own brand die for keeping Smirnoff alive. You know, so there is completely a twister to this as well, that a bottle shop only have 12 vodka spots. And right. That's, all right, Mr. Diageo, that's yours. Now, you tell me, you were telling me that, okay, come Diageo and innovate another vodka. Why would they do that? Why would they take Smirnoff out and put another of their XYZ and put all the effort there. Yep. It sounds the like game is so much about game. shelves as well. Retail yeah. shelves. Yeah. Well, what, what does happen sometimes is that a big boy... I can't hear you. Yeah, no, it's good. Okay, great. What does happen sometimes, and it was kind of... Uh, came up in the news last week. They'll, a big company will buy uh, a small company that's got a number of brands but they really only want one brand, right? right. So Perno bought Castle Brands basically for Jefferson's bourbon. They didn't want Napo Castle Irish single malts 
Uh, they didn't want goslings. They didn't want all these other things. Um, who was it? Diageo acquired uh, Davos brands. Basically just for aviation gin. They didn't want Taiku Saki or Astral mm-hmm. Tequila or something. Uh, but they all came along. However, interestingly, Diageo have now brought out a range of RTDs that includes Astral Tequila. And Astral was the sort of hitchhiker on the back of Aviation Gin, if you will, because in order to buy aviation, they had to buy Davos brands. So Mm -hmm. there's a. it would be, I feel, a lot better if the big companies could take 50,000 case brands and turn them into million case brands or even 100,000 case brands. But I'm not sure there's a lot of evidence. And so where know, are they so going to sell? That, that's what I'm saying. Where are they going to sell? The bartender can only take two of the edges products. Exactly. You know, where are they going to sell? Exactly. And, you know, when you're with Diageo or Perno or Bacardi, you know, the rep comes into the bar and the bar manager immediately thinks, oh, fuck, he's going to try and sell me Smirnoff again. You know, or, oh, this is the guy for Kettle One or this is the guy for Johnny Walker. And it's very hard to be the guy for a cool new brand even if it's amazing. Well, of course, super hard. It's, yeah. imp- it's very hard. It's like, you know, very hard. I mean, we, we all know it. You know, it's you got to have a solid, profitable, convincing story for that buyer that why it makes sense to give you that $200 and I'll make $300 back. That's period, it. You know? Well, talking of uh, confounding things, uh, you're on your way to London. Uh, gin in Europe and the UK is a very different animal to in the USA. And also in the USA, it's been gin's year for the last 10 years, right? Gin hasn't yeah. quite tipped over and it's yeah. been all the way up in the UK. And now it's certainly plateauing, as it were. What's your view on why gin uh, was so big in the UK and it just hasn't scaled those heights on a per capita basis? In the U.S., despite it being beloved in the on-trade and by cocktail bartenders? I'll give you a funny answer, I think. That's what I think. You know, when there is too much of something, you sort of back off. Mm. Uh, I I think that there was too much, too much. Every second guy is bringing gin. Consumers are getting bored and people want new things, you know. So there's and we are all like, you know, when you go in a bar, I think everyone in all kind of generation are exploring things today. So everything is temporary to me right now when it comes to categories. Fair. You know, so it's, I think maybe tequila mezcal is the flavor. And then again, people will, something new comes from Chile or India or some other country. People will explore that. We are all become explorers these days. And I think, uh, you know, uh, that's where a big chunk of the consumer profile is moving now. The next set, all right, what's next? You know, we've seen that in craft beer movement. We've seen that in a lot of other case studies where five, five years of this whole exploration and now the next category, let me let me go and explore. But back to your thing, I think it's just oversupply. It's same thing is happening with tequilas now and mezcals. Same thing you're going to see. I'm sure you will see after two years that we've reached a peak and it's coming down because it's too much. And then the cool guys will start something new and try something new. And then they'll go back again there. But I mean, despite, you're you're right with agave, and that will obviously self-regulate 
because it takes a long time to grow. Uh, it's difficult for the farmers in Mexico. They don't have access to finance, all of this. But all the biggest and smallest producers have you know, tried to push gin in the US and it just doesn't seem to work. I think, yeah. So I think that you to sell in US, you're competing with bourbon, number one. You know, you're you're like literally, I mean, and US itself has the patriotic effect, right? So uh, it's first hard for an import imported sort of drink to come in and take that those kind of spots of bourbon, uh, you know, and whiskey overall. So that that I think is also one of the factors. Uh, We've seen gin growth, by the way, in a lot of Asian nations. Uh, you know, uh, I've seen a growth in Middle East, uh, Asia, Singapore, India. A lot of gin, you know, uh, happening. A lot of craft distillers are making gin, and now whiskey. Same thing is happening. So I'm seeing growth there. But US is, I just think that it's, I don't know, for some reason. I, personally, I, I I used to drink gin a lot as well, but now I've loved sipping tequilas. You know, so. Uh, I'm also trying new things, you know, so I think maybe that is the overall scenario. Okay, well, let's circle back to something that's definitely in your wheelhouse. Uh, if you have a brand, whether you're the brand manager, or it's your own little brand, uh, you can be overwhelmed by all the spirit competitions out there. You don't know which ones are legit, which ones are nonsense. You don't know which one the buyers will respond to or that the buyers will care about. So if you were, if you could put yourself in the shoes of a, a, a startup spirits entrepreneur, what advice would you give them about entering spirits contests for your brand? Sure. So uh, I would say, who are the judges? You know, uh, and I would look at the judging process. And if, if my bottle is being in front of those judges, you know, uh, that is a good ROI as well, because they're at least seeing my bottle. So it's not completely blind. At least I'm getting my ROI, but they recognizing my brand while they're tasting it. Then I would see the cost for sure. You know, the fees, uh, the logistics of it, like, uh, you know, shipping, if there are, you know, if it makes sense for us to ship the number of bottles uh, the competition is asking, uh, the integrity of the competition where, you know, is it like, has it got a thick borderline to it, you know, on on in getting influenced by other things, you know, like uh, is it is it core to its nature, basically? Like in in our in our case, I'm not promoting here, but in our case, let's say we don't invite writers or distillers of uh, so we don't invite suppliers as judges, you know, right? Pretty much. So I would see those kind of things, and then I would see how personally I can use that in my marketing, in my capabilities. I would not rely on competitions to you know I, I get a lot of brands who enter uh for example and then they expect a, an importer giving a purchase order of a container and i have empathy for them like all right look this is a very different thing you know uh for to get to get an importer you, you know uh you you got to do a lot of other things you, you know maybe ten thousand dollars it will take to have an ex exhibition trade show this and that meet hundreds of importers and then you get a purchase order that's a different thing but people are so they don't understand about how to monetize themselves. So I would bet on my own strengths where it would be. I Just so you know, I have my own brand as well. I have a gin brand in UK, made in UK, sold in UK. No way. You know, and for, yeah. So I have my own brand, which I launched uh, for the happiness project. It's called Coca, which is behind the name of the world's happiest animal. So I wanted to promote happiness, empathy, and whatnot. But I'll come back to, 
I, I've had my own wine brand. So what? How I did it? You know, this will add. I think this will make people. This will give them an actionable insight. I entered in wine enthusiast, wine spectator. You know, it was a wine brand, right? At that time. So, you know, if I got even eighty-two points or eighty-eight points or ninety-two, for sure, ninety and above is a gold mine. I would go shout out the town that I won. I won. You know, but I would do it. I would put it on my marketing material. I would excite you, saying, "Philip, you know what? I'm so excited. I got eighty-two points." Imagine that. Even on eighty-two, I'm saying it this way. Right. But you know, like, so that is the difference. Like, if if you just expect. magic to happen you know uh, which even like even a retailer doesn't call budweiser and say give me 10 cases budweiser has to go and ask for an order people yes, don't get do. that so yes they so, do the magic doesn't happen like that it's how you use it so that's the main thing i would look at it what this competition allows me and how i can market that and if it it is it is added in my selling spiel so for example if this competition uh you know is a big brand like let's say wine spectator or decanter which everyone knows i would enter there and then maybe if some of my competition let's say where you know it's all trade buyers of bartender spirits awards and then i'm knocking a door at a bar i would say hey your colleagues evaluated this and that would open up door for me so i would use it in a very strategical and tactical way some some competitions i use for door opens some competition i used to send distributors some competitions i used to, for just consumer awareness so three or four plays i would have and that's what i would do you know uh it depends on how i would want to use in my marketing strategy yeah i th- i think we can all agree that there are some brands who enter contests and they're not really ready because the brand isn't really fully baked they haven't thought yeah. about it they don't have a strategy they don't have tactics they don't know how many marketing peas there are i think there's 6 these days so it was only 4 when i went to college yeah. <laughs> i judged one spirits contest in london and we had a round of irish single malt whiskies very exciting mm-hmm. for an irish man they were they ranged from 62 to 73% abv wow and we were baffled uh, well, we had to have a debate around a fairly expert table like how do we taste these and by the way what were they thinking entering these are people going to buy this bottle off the shelf say 70% abv delicious you know but but you know what as a, as a, as coming from the brand uh, and making our own brands and having that you know you always love your baby right you love your kid you always you know that that's one thing which is very tough for me to say that okay you know even for our trade shows when when some booth is getting so much traffic and some is not it's so hard for me to say and say your shit is shit you know it's 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 not good and it's number 2 it's not in demand you are selling right now let's say gin in america it's not going to sell you got to bring agave for example you know so you are playing against the market you are your product is wrongly priced and those are the realities you got to embrace so the the brand owner who respects the market feedback which i did when i knocked retail stores and bars and if five times the guy told me that said your wine is you know uh, should be 699 i respect that i take that feedback you know so i think brand owners sh- should respect you know uh, not my try entering 5 10 competitions and if you're getting 63 points you know have empathy take it digest it you know it's okay and then maybe don't pitch on quality i make the world's best rum then go on the price twist it around you know yeah there's i mean uh, in my day job 
I'm a consultant to liquor brands, you know, brand creation. I've just created a gin for a client, a spice rum for a client. And generally, people pay me in the room to be the asshole who says those hard things. Because especially yeah. when it's a, a pet project, maybe the owner is also the investor or it's the CEO and he loves this idea and it's a terrible idea. Well, yeah. you do need people who are not your friends, not your family, not your staff to say, well, look, objectively, I think this is wrong. And we see products come to market where that should have been. I'm going to describe one to you. I don't want to name them, uh, but I judged a spirit competition and it was blind judging. And then uh, after judging was completed, we were allowed to go in and see what we'd actually judged. But you couldn't, you had no idea what the bottles were beforehand in this particular spirit mm -hmm. contest. And I had been judging whiskey. So I was interested in looking at everything else. And I went and I looked at another category. And it was an American producer. And they had named their product. It was a gold, the town had been a gold rush town back in the 1800s. They found gold. So Hurriedly, a town was thrown up and, you know, muddy planks and there was a saloon and there was lots of brothels with prostitutes. And they basically named their product after Gold Rush era sex workers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I so there was a bottle and a label and a design and a story on the back. And I'm like, how did this get to the market? Did nobody stop them and say, why don't you think about this for a second? Like, I, I like innovation, as you may guess. But some products get to the market and you're like, you were out of your mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that, you know, uh, let the market say things instead of, you know, uh, so much of critics, uh, personally, to be honest. So when you start knocking doors uh, and when you're using this kind of awards or whatever it is, in opening doors and then when the actual buyer is saying this second second most important thing is all right mr buyer allow me to put this bottle or a case let me come friday and saturday and do the tasting and the consumers are buying and there is no repeat purchase then you then something's wrong but till that moment it's okay go out go out knock on the doors get the product get the repeat buys and then once you're getting the repeat buys then fuck everyone else it's okay you won so tell me, you've got uh, a gin brand, which I didn't know. Tell me how you approached it from the first idea to getting bottles on shelves in sure. hands, in bars. Sure. So uh, when I started my own wine brand, I'll give you the context, uh, which was almost 16 years ago. Uh, I had no money and nothing. So I knocked doors. You know, obviously I had my five or six family, which put 25k tax to start building and supporting me. Uh, but basically I knew no one. So I cold called completely New Jersey, Delaware. They were selling 20,000 cases in just two states. And then overall, I expanded to US 100,000 cases, you know, uh, pretty good for zero to five year, you know, a $5 million business. And then boom, lawsuits happen from Constellation. My my label was called Friday Monkey. There was Monkey Bay, Sauvignon Blanc, and fuck da da da, all that bullshit. You know, the moment I hit Kroger's and this this guys come and the story ends in a bad way. So uh, that time I had no, I just knew nothing or no one. Now I'm in a very different stage of of my life where 
You know, I know from Walmart buyer to the Connaught Bar buyer on London to the Tokyo Stop Bar or whatever it is, right? So uh, I have friends who can trust me because how I roll, meaning I will deliver. If I if I told you that stock my beer, I know how the business works because I want to make sure it sells through, period. Forget about everything else, right? Yes. So they will trust. They'll give me the placement. Uh, and that's how uh, I, I thought that, okay, if that's it, that time did all this hard work and build this now i know this why am i not launching my brand again you know it was that itch uh which made me think that was one right meaning that i should play this now the other angle was uh in full full honesty you know because this is fun and my other angle was i wanted to have an exit i wanted to have some exit uh so i had planned for distilled ventures in london for example to meet uh, and all that stuff and then i had launched a fund drinks uh Founders Fund, where I had I wanted to play this VC game, and this fund uh, invests in this, Distill Ventures invest, and we all go. And I am the dog; I'll make sure it works. And then, boom, I make an exit. That was the play. Right. Then the product product making was this way because I know the bartenders in London, the top bartenders. I sent samples to the twenty top bartenders in London, and I told them, "Let's continue evaluating till you all give me ninety five points and above." Right. So okay. we did that process. I sent samples. They said, I sent samples back. Distiller making again twist uh, because the samples uh, said, okay, 92. I asked you, Philip, why 92? What can I do to make it 95? You write this and that. Then I give it to distiller. We made the product like that. Best, good, amazing tasting gin we made, you know. But then my issue is that is like my 0.01% of my business, which means it doesn't get my time because I got to go back on the street and knock doors, right? And now right. when you have other things where your energy and money, rather spent on this will make you more money. So I'm not able to spend there, you know, uh, but that's, that's the theory of how I started and it's just sitting there. It's not doing much, but I wanted to start a D2C play. So, you know, there, there was this rush of direct to consumer yes. brands and a D2C model. So I want to play, play this whole subscription D2C play, the still ventures fund, fund and my community. And that's, the, that was, the, that was the reason I wanted to, sort of get into the game. And I'm a firm believer of if I'm in this whole business, I always like to educate or tell or have an opinion if I'm in the game, if I've done it. So I can do all this. I can say all this because I'm actually a brand owner. I'm actually, I've built the brands. I've actually run a wholesale business, you know, so that I always truly wanted to have something where I can always say, no one can say, oh, you're, you're this and that. You don't know what you're talking about. No, I know, you know, because if I'm one of you. That's a so, huge thing. And it's a it's a big reason why I started my Geneva. And mm -hmm. before I started it, I thought I knew everything about spirits brands. Uh, I do now, <laughs> but I didn't yeah. before. You really, yeah. you know, until you've owned a bar, run a brand, run a wholesale business, it's very different. So have you, you have launched the gin in the UK. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And it's been about two years. And where can people, can people buy it online? Yes, it is uh, coca gin, Q-U, coca, you know, the animal coca? Yeah, the Australian so, coca. Australian animals, the world's happiest animals, so cocagin.com. So it's a direct-to-consumer. Uh, just a couple of Australian bars uh, are also stocking it, but mainly it's a D2C brand. You know, so on coca gin, you can buy it. It's a $35 a pound premium gin. Uh, but the, the goal is, again, you know, to promote happiness. It is more of a... You know, we're running a planning to run a world's happiest bartender competition. So, but just just the community basically, it's just you know uh, showing gratitude. So you'll see the values. It's happiness mainly.
Nice. And is there any on trade distribution in London? No, I can, I'm telling you, it's just it's just because of time. But uh, yeah, yeah. And Spinnix business is capital intensive. I'm sure you know that. You know, like Ooh. it's just one container and then inventory accounts receivable. You know, all that sort of thing. And I'm I'm just not ready at, at this point of my life to sort of put a lot of money uh, into that project right now. Oh, you're not wrong. But I mean, I'm a, a a fervent lover of gin. I'm a member of the Gin Guild. Uh, is it is the gin produced in the UK? Yes, it is produced in in UK. Is it Thames? No, it is uh, uh, Bentley Distillery. Uh, I'll send you some more details on that, but it is uh, produced by Bruce. Uh, I don't even know like uh, the, the where the town is, you know. But I'll I'll email you. Uh, it's about four hours from London. It's okay. a nice little town, uh, beautiful, great product. It's a yuzu based. Uh, yuzu is the main fruit there. Oh, nice! Very tasty, very nice very gin. Nice. You know, very nice. Uh, I just think that it's it needs a more uh, sort of traditional cold calling approach of knocking bars and doors and support and the pretty the main thing like support. You know, going doing tastings, feet on the ground is needed basically, which I'm not able to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I very often find myself dealing with people who. Uh, the spirit supply side is completely brand new to them. Uh, they come to mm-hmm. me to create a brand. And even if they have been wholesalers or own bars, the whole idea of A, creating you know liquid package closure case, but also creating a brand. There's mm-hmm. plenty of people around. It always surprises me. And they don't really believe in marketing. They think they can just make a great product and do the steps you mentioned, which are necessary, like get feedback, be humble, listen to the market. But I do believe you have to create a brand as well, because if you do that mm-hmm. work, it will sell while you're asleep, which is obviously the goal. And the the received wisdom was always build a brand in the on-premise, get a little mm-hmm. bit of notoriety there, fame. People can see the bottle on the shelf, taste it in a cocktail, and that should then help their buying decision when they're in the liquor store, which is 80% mm-hmm. of spirit sales in the US and generally around the world, except Asia. Do you think that model is still in place or has it just like expanded now to include DTC? I think D2C is very small because again, this is one more thing where people think D2C is easy because you get a couple of cases here and there, but it's such a, such a big capital intensive model to build a consumer brand. It's yes. even harder, to be honest. So my advice is to go on the street, you know, uh, hit those 60 accounts a week, 20 bars, because bar placements are usually expensive when you're starting. You know, you get one case, but you're begging so much, you know, you're going 100 times and you're even paying and eating, you know, so it doesn't, uh, it's not ROI on the look of it. But as you say, brands are built on trade, you know, so so uh, again, you know, like I, you know, if, uh, how you use it. Like if I, I, I tell the whole time, my, my beer, my wine, my spirits is placed in Philips Bar, you know, and then I'll open five more doors. So you can use it in different ways, but I'll, I'll do sixty percent uh, off trade and forty percent on trade, and I'll do both basically. And D two C, no, I would not advise for sure because it's too much capital initially. Yeah, it can be. I've just launched two brands for a client online. And um, what we wanted to do with that in the USA, because obviously uh, direct to consumer is a lot easier in the UK and Europe. You can put your product on Amazon, whatever. Um, If you sell direct to consumer, 
in the US, you have to use a third party service like Speakeasy Co or Thirsty. Yep. There's a new one yep. called Axel Pay. Um, but with those services, you get the data. You literally mm -hmm. know the names and addresses of the people buying your brand, which mm -hmm. is unprecedented transparency. Like Bacardi mm -hmm. don't know that from, they don't get that data from Southern. So mm -hmm. you are, however, completely right. D2C in the US is in its infancy. It's, you know, it's 1%. And then you see reports like D2C has doubled. And I'm like, what, it's 2% now? Yeah. <laughs> And I think that was all COVID uh, sort of uh, moment. Uh, I think we're back. We're seeing back to normal trade sales, like off trade on trade. You know, a lot of D two C is flat. You know, I, I I'm a perfect example. I started this gin brand for a D two C model at the highest levels of distilled ventures to the fund to the whole project I had. You know, but I gave up after spending so much money. You yeah. know, uh, despite so much experience, it's very hard. Uh, unless you are playing around with so much capital, uh, which I wouldn't advise again, because we are all in the era of organic profits, you know, which is which should be the case. Uh, you will burn money like anything, you know. Um, you can you can create a, like if I was to restart or rethink, I would create a complete D two C brand for D two C, like which just looks like a Facebook or a TikTok or Instagram marketable product. You know, you can't have a total wine uh, bourbon and on Instagram, the same bourbon. So no. the channels are very different. No, it's, well, I think you have to recognize that William Goldman said about uh, Hollywood in his classic book about screenwriting, nobody knows anything in Hollywood. Uh, and I mm -hmm. think it's true for the spirits business. Every massive success turns out to have had about 30 people who said, I worked on that, but nobody puts yeah. their hands up for the failures. And exactly. you do need, uh, people to take risks, even to the level of naming your vodka after gold rush era sex workers. Um, I might giggle about that, but who knows? This could be yeah. you know, the next big thing. You can probably remember, there was a time Americans didn't give a shit about bourbon. All they wanted yeah. was the cheapest one. Uh, there was a time when English people didn't give a shit about gin, and it only really changed I think it was it was in the late 90s. Do you know what I put it down to, actually, Sid? Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going to be teaching about this later on. I do a sort of gin and Geneva history and mixology seminar and teach nice. in Toronto. Um, I had just left living and bartending in London. And in the late 90s, England was very cool. They had a young prime minister, Tony Blair. He was still cool then. They had artists like Tracy Emin and Damien Hurst. Mm -hmm. And they had way better cocktails than you could get in the US because the bartenders had already sort of rediscovered the old recipes, fresh juices. This was the era of Dick Bradsell. And Vanity Fair magazine sent the mm -hmm. entire team to London for a week. So, you know, they went and they met Tracy Emin and Damien Hurst and they, and they partied in all these bars and the, they invented for the London edition they did they actually invented the phrase cool Britannia. And mm -hmm. I was following this very closely. When that happened, when England got external validation from America, mm -hmm. if you had gone to the best cocktail bar in London, the Atlantic Bar and Grill, where Dick Bradsell was working, and you made friends with the bartender, so they liked mm -hmm. you, the cocktail they made for you was probably going to be vodka. Mm -hmm. Maybe bourbon, maybe, maybe Maker's Mark, 
or maybe uh, tequila, right? And one of the best tequilas you get then was like Salazar Commemorativo. There was mm-hmm. no way they were making you a gin cocktail. Then this Vanity Fair article came out, the whole edition, and the English bartender said, hey, wait a second, being English isn't so shit. So they started looking to their own ingredients and they began using more and more gin in cocktails. Mm-hmm. And they began using a very traditional English syrup they'd never thought of using before called elderflower syrup. And it mm-hmm. really all got the ball rolling because of that one little, well, quite important magazine edition. But before then, English the cocktail bartenders were not using gin in any significant amounts. Yeah, Crazy. amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. I think one of the things was with the US, US is so big that West Coast is different, Houston's different, you know, the East Coast different. So literally, if, if uh, it's very hard for something to dominate overall, as in in US, um, you know, it can be city based uh, sort of thing. And and I I just think that I mean I'm unfortunately gin is tough. You know, gin has just become very tough uh, overall. It's it's the category has also seen so much oversupply, and there is so much people. There are so many people who are like sort of not making, you know. Uh, money compared to sort of uh, whiskeys and things that are in demand. Exactly. So both through, you know, uh, the family business, your experience and all the contests you run, are there any brands that have become a success that kind of surprised you? Right. There's not obviously you see things coming from far off, but you could probably name 10 or 20 brands that have kind of almost come from nowhere to really do significant uh, publicity, have significant sales? Like if you went by category by category, what would be the ones that surprise you? I'm like having a blind face here because- uh, I'll um, kick you off. Don Papa Rum came out of nowhere for a lot of people, even before yeah. it was bought by uh, Diageo. But it was doing- I mean, I, I, I've seen Cutwater Spirit's journey, you know, hmm. literally. That I, I saw from day one. Um, that is a great example of an amazing branding, like powerful branding, and then Budweiser buys it and so on, you know. Um, but no, I deal with so much small to medium size uh, sort of brands, and unfortunately, you know, uh, I don't, I should, I don't follow up on sort of how the exits are happening or how the growths are happening. And I've stopped reading, you know, a lot of data market you know, hot market data, those hot brands and so on, you know, uh, so sorry. Uh, no, it's, it's, tr- it's tricky. Like most people didn't see Tito's coming because yeah. Tito's obviously born in Texas. They grew to own Texas. Then they went to the next state, the next state. And by the time it turned up in New York, you couldn't and you can't not stock Tito's. Yeah. Even I've, even seen, if- I've seen some growth in uh, Amrut, the Indian uh single malt for sure yes that one in our thing and now they're just doing great uh, i mean a lot a lot of uh some of the brands also did got supermarket placements because they won like out in, in london spirits competition downpour gin is one great example super small guys you know right. uh, and harvey nicholas uh a chain buyer was the guy who just said said who makes this i want to stop this and i've been uh, I like this product and so on. And they got a huge chain placement order. So those kind of, uh, I know a little bit of small success stories, but on the on the huge national level, I just have stopped consuming or following 
uh, <laughs> stuff like what is the origin story? Yeah, well, it's, I always think it's nice to keep up to date. Uh, here's 100%. a statistic that would probably surprise most American listeners, and the brand isn't big abroad. Lunazul Tequila, owned by Heaven Hill, just tipped over a million cases. That's amazing. Wow. And it's not happening in the big population centers and the fancy bars. It's happening everywhere else. So as you said, America is very large. There's at least two Americas. There may be more. <laughs> and, yeah. and what America is all around the coasts and the fancy cocktail bars and the Four Seasons hotels. But the other one is that huge chunk in the middle. And it's a lot of liquor stores and people mm -hmm. uh, consuming at home, having parties, lakes, cabins, all that uh, Absolutely. All that kind of fun stuff. Super. Yeah, success is very uh, heartwarming, you know, when it happens to the smaller guys. And even if it's just a, a sort of a step along the way, like, oh, we've got funding now. We can have a sales rep, you know, yeah. or, or yeah. well, we can we can pay for the next batch when it comes yeah. out. Exactly. Like if you're if you if you're raising money to fill orders, they only raise money. That's good. And then that's that's pretty uh, good way to sort of grow. But if you think that stack up inventory and then I'll go and sell, please don't do that. You know, like don't build inventory and then go out and think that you will have a sale through. It's, it's just tough out there. Yeah, I mean, the from Distill Ventures will tell you that. In fact, I've seen yeah. seminars by them at Bar Convent Brooklyn and the like. And it's basically... Here's how to get acquired by us. And, you know, that's one yeah. of the bullet points, you know. Exactly, exactly. Have, have a business. Great, <laughs> great, great. So, uh, Philip, uh, just one maybe, uh, you know, if, if, uh, final thoughts on, and then maybe we can, if, if that's okay, we can sort of wrap it up as well. Uh, what is your thought? I would love to ask you, what is your thought on uh, how would, if you were a distillery, right, which kind of states in America have solid opportunities, where would you spend more energy and what kind of three or four SKUs uh, and price range you would make for your next 18 months, uh, let's say, play? Well, that's a brilliant question. And I get asked it so much that I've literally got a PowerPoint that myself and my wife, who's also in the business, uh, will present to friends. It's not like a consulting project or anything like that to say, and it's kind of like America 101. You know, you yep. think you know America. You do not. <laughs> um, I, I like to say America is not a real country. It's like three little boys under a raincoat pretending to be a man. It's 50 <laughs> countries divided by a common language. And it's so different. If you get the pass yeah. train from Manhattan to New Jersey, you might as well be flying from London to Moscow. The laws are so different. And then it changes again when you go over the border to Pennsylvania. And this is all happening within just a couple of hours, let alone, True. you know, um, I start off by explaining the three-tier system, which usually requires a strong drink. And then we get into the statistics. 52% of all the liquor drunk in America is drunk in just 10 or 11 states. Mm -hmm. Right? It's all the ones that most people can name. So uh, Florida, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, California, Texas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we talk about the 80% uh, on and off trade split, which is pretty much mm -hmm. consistent all across the country. And then I say to people, what does success look like for you in 18 months? Is it we're in America? Is it we're in America and we're selling cases? Or is it we're in America 
and we're seated in the best bars. Now, it's never just one thing, but if you're looking at an 18-month timeline and you're a distillery, and let's say uh, you've got four brands in two categories or three categories, um, I will always say you got to be in New York. New York is expensive, but all the media and publicity are there. Or mm-hmm. to put things differently, name a spirits writer from Texas and take all the time you need. Uh, there's 8 million people walking into a bar in New York City, in Manhattan, every single day. There's 30,000 active liquor accounts. You don't mm-hmm. need even a bicycle to get around New York, just a Metro card. And you can hit up on and off premise accounts to your heart's degree. And like 8 million people, that's almost twice the population of my country in mm. a small and thirsty island. We haven't even gone to Brooklyn yet. So you must be present there to some degree. You will get very good, very fast, very brutal uh, feedback. And you get to deal with a lot of small liquor store owners because we don't have the chains in New York for reasons that are too complicated to go in here. So many of them don't drink in, in very often. So they will give you feedback on how your bottle is moving, how your case is moving. Other places, the buyer is somebody incredibly intelligent and well-versed and loves whiskey and loves gin and loves agave. And they'll give you feedback too, but perhaps not quite as brutally. So I, I would say always get seated in the best bars, have a presence in New York and expand in the US extremely carefully, right? Mm-hmm. If you're doing well in New York, after eight months, you can go to Connecticut. After another four months, you can go to New Jersey. And you're still all in a day's travel. If you come in thinking, oh, I've got to be here and here and here and here and here and here and here. Well, unless you've got $100 million, and even if you do, I remember just before the sale to Brown Foreman, I was having a drink with my friend Simon Ford. And we were talking about this exact topic. And he said, Philip, Ford's is for sale in 30 states. And I'm fairly sure we lose money in 20 of them. Mm. You know, again, it sounds so silly, but I have to remind myself of this. America, very large. The flight from New York to London is only half an hour longer than the flight from New York to San Francisco or Los Angeles. And it's considerably shorter than the flight to Seattle or Portland. So you wouldn't think of launching right across Europe even if you had the money to do it, that iterative process, yeah. state by state by state, uh, will be. And let, let's say on the on the category, we got New York. What kind of product you would come out if you were thinking today? Um, if you, if you're a little guy and you've got like a little money, let's say you've got a million dollars, right? Which is is nothing, but also not nothing if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a space for you in New York or wherever it is you start. You can start in Texas or California, but New York makes Mm -hmm. sense for a lot of reasons. Um, Whether you are selling Pisco or Cachaca uh, or Geneva, there's a niche for you there. You can build up a healthy business. I don't really believe in these things. You know the way people say, oh, they don't drink rum in New York. They only drink rum in the summer. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't really believe in that. If you're at the level of Bacardi, maybe there's a difference between consumption in San Fran and New York. But this whole thing like, oh, New York drinks whiskey and gin. I don't buy it. Realistically, if you're looking to grow and do anywhere between zero and 20,000 cases, it really doesn't matter what you've got. And uh, 
that means you can compete in New York City against the Tito's of this world, against the Gordons, against the uh, Don Julio's, against the Del McGay Vitas in, in almost any category that you have. And I, I just tell people, take America slowly. Uh, even Whatever money you have, try yeah. to make it appear you have less because this country will suck it all up and build a tribe. It's much better to have a hundred people who are willing to get the L train from Bushwick all the way to the West Village of Manhattan to buy your bottle mm -hmm. than to have a thousand people who've tried it once. They're like, that's eh, all right. You know, you want people who will crawl over broken glass to order your stuff. That first yes. 10, 20, 100 true believers uh, are what you need to cultivate almost no matter what your category is. 100% agree. I think I think to add it up, uh, I, I would pay attention to depletion rate, sell-throughs, you know, make sure that those accounts uh, have a proven case of stocking your product. And then you sort of build from there. First, take care of a repeat business, you know, build a good repeat business in the current accounts. Well, you, you mentioned the B word earlier on, Sid, not just because how much you love it. You mentioned beer. And when I had Chris Maffeo on the podcast, and I was on his podcast too, um, he said something that literally had never really occurred to me before. His background is beer. And he said, well, if you sell a case of beer or a keg of beer to a bar and the bar doesn't sell it, they call you up two months later and they say, hey, do you want to send me some more free stuff or uh, yeah, give me a credit because the beer didn't sell. Whereas yep. if you sell them a bottle of whiskey, well, it can sit there a year later. Uh, it's dusty, but it's still there. So focusing- But it's just like, don't show me your face again, sort of thing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's why if you sell one bottle of liquor to a bar, you haven't really sold any. You want to sell at least three and you want yeah. to be able to come back a month later and see that one and a half of them is gone. Yeah, and I, I I I tell my people that uh, did you get the third order in the same account and then we're talking till that don't even think. Yeah, exactly. You, th then you're in that constellation of possible brands. Yeah, on the back bar, on the list, you know, listed in the spirits, and then hopefully one day uh, on the cocktail menu. And then if the cocktail menu changes two three times a year, maybe you're on it once out of three or two out of three. Yeah, that's absolutely. absolutely the way. And obviously that that goes for any country in the world, but especially the USA, yeah. because we, uh, you know, we don't have listing fees in America. Yep. In fact, you're legally not allowed to do it, which is good and bad. You know, I do like the level playing field that it creates to some degree. Uh, and even in very intensive listing fees, places such as the UK, where you're headed next, Sid, the very best bars, you know, the Savoys and Artesians and all of this world, even they'll take listing fee money, but they won't let it buy a whole menu. So if they have 12 mm -hmm. cocktails, eight of them will be bought and paid for by the various big brands, but four of them will not. And that's the opportunity for Old Duff Geneva and Quokka Gin and, you know, all the other fantastic. And they, let's be let's be very clear. Bullet Bourbon's amazing, but it doesn't really build your brand if you're a very fancy cocktail bar to have bullet bourbon on the menu. It's fine. It doesn't mm -hmm. reduce the quality of your brand. But if you have cool producer X in cool True. category Y, 
well, that's amazing. If you have a Valen Calvados on your menu, mm-hmm. as well as Don Julio Tequila, well, then everybody looks good. Right. Absolutely. So that's something that the best listing fees people certainly instinctively understand. And I, I have to imagine it's the same in the beer and wine world, too. Absolutely. And I think I think London overall still has that I, I would personally say more of an art thing into it. You know, a lot of Italians are so passionate, very different than the American bartender, as you know. You know, uh, but and overall, America, you know, generally is more of a PL, you know, focused approach as well. You know, uh, where Diageo will throw so much money that you can't refuse. End of the day, you know, uh, so you have to say no to the money to keep the art alive. Is what I'm saying. You know, uh, if if you want that sort of niche brands and the concept and this whole thing. But let's let's uh, wrap it up if you don't mind. I just want to add one thing that I personally think. America is still the best country for brands to operate. You know, I we do business in Paris, Shanghai, UK, a lot of other countries. I really, really think, you know, even my gin, I can sell more. I know that, but I'm not doing it. You know, it's the best, best country still because everyone gets one chance to prove, you know, and then you go to perform. And if your brand actually performs, you come into Friday night, Saturday night tasting, you sell throughs and the, the buyer will support you and support you and support you. So that is the best thing which I like about US where, you know, you do get a chance because of the entrepreneur nature of the country. Uh, you just have to back it up. You're part of the promise. So that's that's sort of my sort of play for 2024 and some insp- in, inspiring words for the brands out there, you know, that buyers will give them a chance as long as you show them you know, that you will help them sell through. Yes. Yeah. You're selling with them, not to them. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So Sid, you're off to London. Uh, is there any favorite bar or pub you're going to try and pop into first? I always go to Duke's. You know, I love the bartender, you know, Alexandra. And, uh, Please and say hello to him from me. I will. So I like Duke's. That's our sort of after event, 100% one. Then cannot obviously we go. Then Savoy. You know, the usuals, I also do uh, one of the show called Inside the Drinks Business. So I film behind the bar scenes and all that. But these are the three or four. And then I love the Main Street pubs, like just like the, those neighborhood pubs. So I the, the character of that pub is more appealing to me than the canots of the world. Exactly. Well, it's a, you're probably going to bump into off-duty canot bartenders in the pub. <laughs> yeah, Exactly, exactly. One of the good hacks that one of the bartenders in Chicago told me is, you know, for brands to really make a relation is throw a 12 a.m. after bar pub party or a beer party to the bartenders, invite them and then, you know, uh, you you got them as a thank you. Oh, definitely. So, hey, um, any interesting developments or uh, new things happening in 2024 for yourself and the the whole network that you run? in all honesty, we are scaling down. Uh, we expanded, I think, and 2024 is a year where you want to have a laser focus. So, you know, I've cut down. We we do 16 events a year. I've cut down a lot of events. So uh, China, we've cut down for now. You know, Germany, we were planning, we're cut down. Uh, so we're, we're focusing less. Uh, so at, that's our uh, angle. And I would advise the same for a lot of people, you know, because I think you got to be, you, you got to make sure that when when something happens, you're not out of the business. So, you know, we're going back in the core. We're growing our U.S. and U.K. markets. That's my strategy for 2024. We've forgotten about other countries which were in our wish list like Germany, France uh, and China and India. 
and Singapore, we had so much, you know, uh, in 2022, we were doing a lot of other countries, everything back to US, UK, back to base. And that's, that's a play that we're doing. Brilliant. So if people want to contact you and also if people want to find the competitions online and enter, where can they find you online and where can they find all the various elements of your network? Sure. So, I mean, uh, you can Google me as well, Sid Patel Beverage Trade Network, and then my LinkedIn. If you add it, LinkedIn will pop up and uh, I'm on Instagram as well. I just started like about 14 months ago. I was too late to the party. Wow. Uh, I know. But that, that, there I give uh, every week one actionable insight on business as well. So every Monday, uh, a real practical, like today I gave how to get into national chains like Costco. So very hard for real thing, completely based on how I did it, right? So real stuff is there. So I think that's a couple of places where they can find me. And Beverage Trade Network, London Spirits Competition, Bartender Spirits Award. These are the sort of some of our assets uh, that they can find me as well. And let's not forget Quokka Gin. I am going to get a bottle as soon as I'm <laughs> appreciate that, that, which that's won't be long now. Child. I'm so bad. Like I keep forgetting my gin brand, but I don't even give any love to that. But thanks, Philip. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, looking forward to catching up wherever we, we meet up in the city. You know, I, I, by the way, I see that you, you, I just was reading about you as well. You, you were in Tales of Cocktail. Uh, you know, you, you do come to Perwine. Are you coming to Germany in March? Uh, I, I've been asked by two people, and I uh, the short answer is I'm not sure. At the moment, it's okay. not looking like it because I think I've got a double booking. And it kills me because Provine, this is going to be the biggest spirit selection they've ever had. So yeah. if, if I don't make it, the FOMO will be huge. Did you travel to uh, San Francisco or Chicago or anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Cool. So yeah. let's let's catch up over there and would love to meet you. And if, if in Düsseldorf, you know, we're throwing a nice after event party as well. Would love to have you there, but uh, feel free to let me know. I would love to catch up over a beer in a in a bar. <laughs> First a martini, then a beer. Yes, gin martini. Sipatel. Uh, thanks very much, you.